Hello everyone and welcome to A Cast of Kings, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series Game of Thrones. My name is David Chen and I've never read any of the books in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. My name's Joanna Robinson and I've read all the books in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. And joining us today, we have a very special guest. He is a television critic who's written for avclub.com as well as for his own personal blog at Cultural Learnings. Miles McNutt, welcome to A Cast of Kings. Thank you very much. And I, I feel so I need to now like put my hand to my chest and say, I have read all the books in George R.R. Martin's <laughs> A Song of Ice and Fire. Good, yes. <laughs> good. So we know what team you're playing for then. If you're just tuning in to A Cast of Kings for the first time, you should know that you can email us at acastofkings at gmail.com and find all of our episodes at gameofthronespodcast.com. We discuss Game of Thrones prim- primarily as a television show and not as a book series, uh, so that means that there are no spoilers from future episodes of Game of Thrones, and that includes any spoilers revealed in the next time on Game of Thrones previews that you see on HBO. Uh, this week, we'll be spoiling everything through Season 2, Episode 6, The Old Gods and the New. And I should point out, please try to keep in mind that spoiler rule, primarily when you comment at SlashFilm.com, and also kind of... Uh, when you're emailing into a cast of kings at gmail.com if you want me to read the email. Joanna obviously can read all the emails because she knows what's going on, but uh, she's screening them for me. So a lot of the emails are getting screened out. So uh, just keep that in mind with regards to the spoilers. But speaking of feedback, guys, uh, we got a lot of emails uh, to get to this week. So we're going to start by responding to some of the emails uh, that were sent in uh, in response to last week's episode, Season 2, Episode 5, uh, The Ghost of Harrenhal. And uh, let's talk about John Miller's email from Fairbanks, Alaska. John writes in, uh, this is to Dave Chen, on the most recent episode you were talking about the scene between Davos and Stannis, and you reacted to Davos' comments with a question about if we're supposed to find Melisandre and her spoke baby evil. You stated that even though you do think they are evil, that the show had not yet given you enough proof to say one way or the other. I feel you have missed the point here. Editor's note, not the first time we've gotten an email saying this. Uh, <laughs> they don't want to tell you that she is or isn't evil. Two reasons. One, life is rarely that simple. Except for a very select group of characters, none of them are evil or good. They're complex people with motives and schemes, and you pick who you ally with. I have friends that find Tyrion evil and others who root for him. He has done things to deserve both. That leads me to my second point. You decide if she's evil or good for yourself, which it sounds like you have. She's representing her religion and is fighting for her cause. Does this make her evil? That's up to you. All we know for sure from this scene is that Davos finds her and her methods to be wrong, something that becomes important later on. This is a complex show. Don't look for the writers to always hand you an obviously evil character like Joffrey every time. There will be many characters, both already on the show and some not yet, who will be far more complex than her. Thanks for your time. Um, I also want to point out, we, we I think we got another email pointing out that uh, the conflict wasn't necessarily about the evilness, but just that... Uh, yeah, just reiterating some of the things you mentioned last week, Joanna, about her being a foreigner and, and her using this magic and that being kind of not something that you necessarily want to place in control of the kingdom. Um, so we got a lot of feedback about the Melisandre character and whether we're supposed to think he's evil. What do you guys make of this email? Do you, do you agree with John from Fairbanks, Alaska? Let's start with Joanna. 
Oh, I definitely do. I think, I think John has a great point. And yeah, that, that other thing you mentioned, Dave, another listener pointed out the parallel between Danny's conversation with Jorah Mormont about bringing foreign forces over to take over Westeros and the Davos and Stanos conversation, which I thought was an interesting comparison about, you know, outsiders coming in versus the people of Westeros taking over the Iron Throne. So I thought that was interesting. Miles, any thoughts on Melisandre as she's portrayed in the show? I think we're meant to perceive her as dangerous. Yeah. Whether that constitutes evil or good, I think that's a different question. But this idea that by based on the kind of really the, the radicalness of her religion compared to what they're dealing with and the idea of her as an outsider, I think is a good way of putting it, that we are meant to sort of feel as though what role she plays could determine the path moving forward, which says something dangerous for a world that has otherwise been dominated by the work of men for centuries. And so as we watch Danny across the narrow sea with her dragons and Melisandre with her magic, we start to think, what is the role this is going to play in these conflicts? And how can that be controlled and sort of, I guess, managed as we move forward? So I think that it's these are good conversations to have, regardless of where we kind of move down on them. We're meant to have an opinion about Melisandre. I think it's fine to take a side one way or the other. I don't think we need to sit somewhere in the middle. We can sort of take a stand on the issue and let that play out as it will. All right. Um... I also want to read you this email from Roger just to demonstrate some of the emails we've been getting. I I would say a significant percentage of the emails we get are similar to this, um, but not certainly not close to the majority. And um, here's Roger's email. I have to say, so far I'm enjoying your Game of Thrones podcast. The whole one of us read the books, one of us hasn't read any, is a really common theme, so it doesn't really differentiate you guys at all. However, I love the whole Dave doesn't like fantasy or understand it at all thing. When David asked for clarification about what we do not sew means, I pictured him wondering, if they don't sew, how come they have clothes? Why are there no rules? I laughed so hard I nearly peed. Joanna brings a nice balance. Though I thought the description of Drogo's first time with with Danny was a way overblown, brutal rape. Seriously, it was a peck on the cheap of uh, I'm sorry, a peck on the cheek of a rape scene. Sure, she cried, but there was no violence done to her at all. You described the scene from the book, and it sounded like the show fit that pretty damn well. So uh, here's a guy who emails in. Um, first of all, insults the podcast, then insults me, and then proceeds to discuss how the rape uh, in the first season of Game of Thrones is not a brutal one. Yeah, but um, you know what? I, I came out looking pretty good in that email, so uh, <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> you came out looking as good as Danny did after her rape scene. <laughs> right, which was just a peck on the cheek. Of it was a peck scene. on the cheek of a rape scene, yeah. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't even want to say So So let me just acknowledge, first of all, that yeah, I guess you're right, Roger. I mean, maybe she could have been completely like mutilated and mangled afterwards. But uh, I think we all agree that any type of rape is, is brutal, especially the way they showed it on screen. Um, so just just felt the need to clarify that in case it wasn't clear from our joking around. Um, all right. We, we have a bunch more emails we're going to get to at the end of this episode of A Cast of Kings. Um, and again, you can always keep those emails coming to acastofkings at gmail.com. But uh, before we get to those, guys, let's uh, talk about this episode, Season 2, Episode 6, The Old Gods and the New. This episode, uh, let's just talk about general thoughts, and then we'll start to go like scene by scene or location by location. So, Joanna Robinson, your thoughts on this episode? Um, I thought there were – it was a good episode. It was a great episode. 
I love everything that is going on in Iceland. Those scenes are so amazing. Oh, so beautiful. And we're yeah. so fortunate to get to see that on our television on a weekly basis. Um, but there were, I, I really hate to like repeat myself every week, but there were a couple ways in which it diverged from the book that I don't understand why. Maybe, um, you can tell me what you thought of those parts when we get there. And maybe Miles can tell me whether or not he thought those differences were worthwhile or not. So, Miles McNutt, your general thoughts on Season 2, Episode 6? Uh, I think it was really strong. I think the reason it was strong for me was that this seemed to be the first episode where things were all in motion. I didn't feel like anything was stopping to introduce a new piece or move something into place. I mean, certainly new characters emerge, but they emerge from within situations we've been introduced to. And it felt like everything was moving in different directions in a certain degree of harmony. And I think to this point in the season, we've seen more building pieces of kind of getting things into place, the moving pieces models we've talked about on multiple podcasts in the past, I'm sure. But here I felt that things were moving a bit more deliberately. I felt like things were heading in certain directions. And while there were divergences from the book, they were very purposeful divergences that in this instance, at least for me, brought things to a really interesting point that I, at least least, uh, personally, I find very evocative and interesting as we move into the back half of the season. I personally thought this was a really solid episode. Um, I'd give it like an 8 out of 10. There's some work in here that's just spectacular. Uh, and then there's some stuff in here that's actually mind-bogglingly stupid, in my opinion. We'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> I, I think you guys probably know what I'm referring to, but we'll get to that very shortly. Uh, the episode begins in Winterfell with Theon's uh, plan coming to fruition. And he storms in. And, uh, it's, it's fascinating. Here, there's a scene where, right, Fionn comes into Bran's room, and Bran's this, like, child who's been disabled by the fall from season one, episode one, uh, and Fionn is coming in with his army at his back, and I feel like Bran is the one that seems much more mature in this situation. Is it just me? Oh, no, it's not you. Not just no. you at all. It was a, it was a really great juxtaposition of, like, what a child. Theon is and how out of his depth he is in this whole thing. Yeah. He's just like, he's just sort of, uh, I've used the term in the past, frustrated masculinity quite frequently in in a variety of circumstances. Um, I I think of a couple characters that come to mind. Uh, The uh, Iggy character from season two of The Wire. (laughs) <laughs> if you if you know that reference and yes. and and to a to a lesser extent uh Walter White from Breaking Bad although although the, like I don't think Theon is nearly as badass as Walter White. So yeah, it's it's fascinating to see his character unfold and and uh this I just thought this entire sequence was really masterful uh the way he tries to execute that guy um, who's Sir Roderick? Sir Roderick, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, whose name I knew, and I was going to say momentarily. Oh, um, sorry. No, it's okay. Um, and uh, and he executes Sir Roderick and like doesn't get it quite right. Um, in fact, none of the the Stark uh, wards really do a good job of executing people this episode. But uh, so much in what that interaction was where like he was torn about whether or not to execute him and because of his stupidity and mouthing off like that's what happened and then he couldn't even do it right uh it just spoke so much to how ill-equipped he is for this situation and you gotta, uh, as go ahead. gratuitous like as gratuitous as that well off-screen violence was 
I was so glad that part was in there. That's directly from the book, except it's a different guy in the book, but we don't know that guy at all. So it was perfect that it was a character that we can recognize. He's got that very recognizable right. facial hair situation. So we all like knew Sir Roderick. <laughs> and um the fact, I mean, it's just that comparison of like he's trying to be Ned Stark and Ned Stark, you know, could swing his sword once with a clean cut and it was done. And Theon just cannot do anything right. And it's terrible and gruesome. And he hates himself. And it's just, it's a mess. And it was great. It, it was a uh, a sort of really rough scene in an episode that also happened to include a disemboweling and a near rape. Uh, so I, I think this was actually the roughest out of all of those things I just said. Uh, so yeah, a, a really fantastic way to start off the episode and just a brutal scene to watch. Um, any other thoughts on the Theon storyline, uh, Miles, before we move on? I guess that's the one thing I will say in terms of that opening sequence is that something, it definitely is, it, it resonated. And I mean, technically speaking, the Theon story kind of dies down after that. It's not all, you know, destruction and sort of violence. But I, what I love about that Bran sequence you mentioned at the beginning was the idea that Bran didn't believe that Theon was there in that capacity. He right. couldn't see it. The idea that Theon walks in, he's just like, hey, Theon, what's up? And because that's what Theon was to them, he was a bit of a joke. He was just a friend in many ways. And so when Bran starts to piece that together, it's not real. But in that moment, and it's not really real for Theon either. I mean, for Theon in that moment, it's very much more just like he's playing. He's playing the victor. He's playing this role. He's waltzing into Bran's room to announce his presence, etc. But when he has to kill Roderick, it's real. In the same way, it becomes real for Bran in that moment, who's sitting there, unable to move forced to watch this, unable to look away, really forced in this mode, just screaming. There's something very visceral about that for both characters, where you see them both being forced to confront the maturity they've been thrown into. Um, either in Theon's case, he's kind of dead Dovin, I guess. But there's this real challenge there to this order of these younger characters that the show has a really, really good job of portraying. I don't know if I interpreted it the same way as you in terms of what Bran's reaction was. I don't think it was like, oh, Theon's a joke. And always has been. I think it was just like, it's just weird if a guy that you've grown up with, you know, I guess storms I, into your castle yeah. and just says he's your enemy. I guess I mean less less joke and more sort of, uh, less that he's like a joke and a haha look at him, but more just kind of like joking, like friends, like that sort of relationship. Gotcha, Similar. gotcha. That's what I'm looking at there. I, I just think like for them, for the Starks, it just like must come out of nowhere. Do you know what I mean? Like... They yeah. send this, this guy off, like Rob. He, his his react like uh, Catelyn was uh, seemed like she knew what was going on, uh, but Rob was like, "I sent him away." We had this like they had this like manly moment together, you know, when he's like, "I'm gonna help you out," and then the next thing he knows, he's curing from a raven that uh, that Theon has betrayed him. It just it's such, it must be such a weird disorienting thing to happen. Yeah, and I mean they were it wasn't just a manly talk; there was a brotherly talk. You know what I mean? They yeah. were. They were almost brothers, basically, and and you saw that in a previous episode with Theon writing that note to Rob and then burning it because it's not it wasn't an easy decision for Theon either, you know yeah. he, these loyalties. So and you know I I don't know what's gonna happen. Well, let's let's talk about that at the end of this episode, but uh, let, let's move on for now. We go to King's Landing where the ninety nine percent are rising up against <laughs> the royals. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so this is this is a pretty interesting scene, right? So first of all, uh, can one of you explain the state of play with Cersei's child? They they're sending her to Dorne, 
Right. Um, which is the area in the southern part of Westeros. Um, we have not seen anything from Dorne. We have heard of them only in very vague terms. They're kind of keeping Dorne in their back pocket. Um, I based without spoiling anything, Dorne is important later. I mean, we, we, we go to Dorne. Dorne is a place that exists in this world, but they definitely have left it very open to interpretation how much time they're going to spend there. So Marcella is kind of being sent off into the great unknown. It is Dorne, but I don't really know if it matters that it's Dorne at this point. Because right. We know so little that she's just being sent off towards somewhere similar to really what happened to Theon. Gotcha. Gotcha. So anyway, that that ceremony goes fine, and then uh, then the guy, who, like the priest guy, is it the priest guy who like can get uh, whose arm gets ripped off? Is that did I see that correctly? Uh, I don't he, think it was a character that we knew. Really? Oh, I, I thought yeah. th- that it was the guy. Okay, so then like a riot erupts, right. and then one guy gets his arm ripped off, and I thought that was the guy that was like the priest that was sending off Marcella, but I could be wrong about that. Is that you guys know what I'm talking about? If I remember was... the arm getting ripped off, but I, no. <laughs> that, <laughs> that I remember, believe it or not. Yeah, yeah, but but no, you you didn't recognize who that was. All right. I mean, it, yeah, if it was the priest who sent Marcella off, it's not a character that I think has been established in our hearts. Of course, of course. Well, it's, it's a member of the royal court. Let's say. yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, got got his arm ripped off. Um, and so so we're to take that like. That Joffrey shouldn't have fought back against getting crap thrown in his face, uh, and, and thus initiated this entire riot. Right. His yeah. his reaction shouldn't have been shrieking, "Kill them all!" <laughs> okay. Some shit being thrown in his face. And then there's this interaction between Tyrion and Joffrey, and I believe, but I'm not a hundred percent sure that this is the first time in the the entire series that we've seen Tyrion lose his composure. Is that correct? Do you guys? Um, because I can't think of another time and it, it's very disorienting to see because it doesn't usually happen. And I, I gotta be honest, I like passive aggressive Tyrion a lot better than I like aggressive Tyrion. I don't know if you guys feel the same way. Traitors! All their heads! Oh, you blind bloody fool! You can't insult me! We've had vicious kings, and we've had idiot kings, but I don't know if we've ever been cursed with a vicious idiot one. You can't! I can, I am! They attacked me! They threw a cow pie at you, so you decide to kill them all! They're starving, you fool! All because of a war you started! You're talking to a king! And now I've struck a king. Did my hand fall from my wrist? Let them have her! If she dies, you'll never get your Uncle Jamie back! You owe him quite a bit, you know! Well, I mean, like, the, the one instance that I can think of where we never really get to see it happen was when he was forced onto the battlefield by his father. There, he lost composure. He didn't know what to do with himself. He was just kind of, like, wandering aimlessly, and then he got knocked out cold, they won the battle, and he was good to go. Well, I mean, but, um, like, lost composure, like, you know, yeah. got angry, is what I'm saying. And that's just thing like the idea of losing control the idea of being in this position and it's true that he does sort of lose that here and i think you raise an interesting point is obviously i mean like it's very satisfying to see him hit joffrey like, yes let's just get that on the table we all but... love a good joffrey slap <laughs> Absolutely. And, and that's honestly borderline a punch like yeah. i mean it was somewhere in between like it was it was deserved but i guess the question is what do we think how does that mesh with the character that we've been perceiving which is a much more sort of benevolent figure to people like Sansa and certainly he was concerned with Sansa in that moment 
but you also start to see perhaps the same kind of losing composure that defines Cersei at her worst moments, where you start to link the two siblings together in ways that I think are important to understanding the Lannisters as a family. And although Jamie remains off screen at this point, I, I think that his character is in a similar position of who are these siblings, what are their relationship with each other, and what is their disposition? What is their approach? Um, how do we kind of understand them? I think there's a good question to ask about the Lannister family in this case. And I do think that this sort of brings Tyrion back to, is he, is he still a villain? And I don't think, I think it's an open question. I think this is a point that many people, I think when the letters spoke to, that people have these different opinions about. But I think this really, I think, spoke to that in a way that I think is important for the sort of ambiguity of that character in this universe. There's also the question that that we've raised before on the podcast of the depiction of Tyrion in the show versus the books in terms of his uh, his compassion, especially for Sansa, and you know, in retrospect for Ned Stark, um, has been much more mercenary, I think, in the TV show than I feel like it was depicted in the books. And so, you know, his concern for Sansa. I mean, he, he I think he cares about Sansa, but he also cares. It seems like he cares much more about her as a bargaining chip than yep. as a person in the show. And so he's like, you know, if we if we lose Sansa in this crowd, we can't get Jamie back. And that's what's important. Not she's a young girl and I like her and I don't want her to get raped and killed, you know. So, I mean, I think there's both. But do you know what I mean? I feel like Tyrion's yep. more mercenary in the show than – Yeah, I although you have seen her – you have seen him being tender with Sansa before. So – uh, you know, and he he obviously hooks Sansa up with the uh, the handmaiden. Um, so you know what I mean. Like I, I think there's. Well, a that's to protect Shay more than it is. Fair to... enough. Fair yeah. enough. And I guess what I would say in that respect, and I think that's very true, and I think we could kind of track the character that way. I also think there's an element of respect there between Tyrion and Sansa for Sansa's ability to contain herself, to regain her composure, to exist in this environment, and to play this role. I think that that respect goes a long way with Tyrion, so whereas the compassion, I would argue, is certainly mixed in with this more mercenary spirit, I think that respect doesn't feel as mercenary. It feels more, I guess, almost like reverence of yeah. what she's managing to accomplish. So I guess I would still suggest that there is this very, if not outright heroic, then certainly leaning that direction, uh, characterization of Tyrion within that particular relationship and within Tyrion's relationship in some ways with women in general. Um, but we can sort of start to understand, you're right, that parts of that is still pragmatic. That pragmatism that drives him is still sort of the prevailing force and is what keeps us from saying, go, go, Tyrion. Uh, what is the remark? He says, uh, if we don't get Sansa, you'll never get your Uncle Jamie back. You know, you owe him a great deal, you know. Uh, he, he's referring to, I assume, the fact that Jamie fathered him, right? Yes. Is that okay? I didn't know if he, there's something else at play there. Don't think well, uh, and, and also Jamie sort of is responsible for their their vaulted position in right, the first place, right, 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 because of what he did, you know, to help Rob get thrown and stuff. Yeah, like that. I, I mean, I guess I'm just like, really, Tyrion cares about Jamie at this point, you know, like when Tyrion he does that. care about Jamie. That's yeah. really important, actually, yeah. because he's the like. Tywin and Cersei always treated Tyrion like crap, and Jamie was the only member of his family who was kind to him. So Tyrion cares more about Jamie. I'd say Shay is possibly the only person he cares about more than than Jamie right now. He like he has such fondness for Jamie. It's Interesting. Interesting. I, I don't know how much of that is on screen, but that no. I mean it makes sense. I would actually I would actually say there's very little of it, right. and in part it's because I mean obviously in the books the internal dialogue Tyrion spends a lot of time talking about Jamie. In his conversation with other people and his right. kind of internal head in, in his head, et cetera, 
But I think in this case, Jamie's been very much out of sight, out of mind this season. He's been off prisoner with Rob for an extended period of time. And so I think for that reason, too, it's easier for us to forget his relationship to other characters when he's always spoken of as an absence, when we don't see that being reinforced, when we don't kind of go turn to there, which, I mean, he wasn't a point of view character in the books at this point. So right. that's logical on some level, but I do think it's it's kind of creating this dissonance between what we know about right. their relationship right. and Jamie's importance to the family and what the show has established, which is more about his relationship with Cersei, yeah. and sort of privileging that side of things. We and we seen- talked, and we talked about this. I think was it last week or two weeks ago, Dave, about how like yeah, the show was not doing a good enough job showing how much Cersei loved Jamie. That it wasn't just you know that she loves him, you know. And so like the whole keeping Santa alive and like the whole almost the whole war has so much to do with getting Jamie back. He's this hugely important thing to them. So interesting. Um. So yeah, uh, I I don't know. Again, like it, we haven't seen Jamie in like a number of episodes. I, right. I'm actually curious, like what's going on with him? How's he? How's he, where's his wisecracking ways? You know, like I miss I miss <laughs> that miss that guy. Um, I I can't finish uh, this episode without mentioning how awesome the Hound is in this episode. Um, and it really reminded me of uh like Terminator One, man. You know, like <laughs> Arnold's like just like mechanically destroying these guys. You know, uh, to save Sansa. Uh, and then there's that line at the end. He's like, "I didn't do it for you. You, just, you didn't do it for Tyrion." Uh, which implies to me that there is some kind of affection for Sansa that, that the Hound has. And, and we've seen that before, in particular season one episode, uh, uh, the season finale of season one. Right. Um, where he like gives her that rag for her face. Um, and we see it again here. And so that's kind of interesting to see that develop. There was also a moment when Joffrey had stripped off her clothes uh, right. a few episodes ago and, and uh, Maren Trant was attacking her. He kind of came over without being prompted and put his cloak around her. Right. It was just a background moment. It wasn't played like here's this moment. But I will say, I, and I have to sort of acknowledge, and this isn't even really a spoiler, but I will say that a lot of this is fan service <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of sans tan, as they are known, um, and the kind of ship that has borne out around them based on sequences like this one. Gotcha. All right, uh, let's move on to what Jon Snow is doing this week. Uh, so He's keeping is, warm any way he can. He's keeping warm any way know? he can. And guys, okay, this this is like the dumbest thing that's ever happened in the history of Game of Thrones. All right? It's like they catch this woman, Egret, and they're like, well, and he like lays out the whole thing. He's like, okay, well, we can't keep her alive because we need someone to watch her. We need to feed her. You know, she might make noise, blah, blah, blah. We got to kill her. Uh, and he's like, I'll do it right now. It's just going to take 10 seconds. And then John says, like, no, let me do it. And then he's like, okay, well, see you later. Bye. And they just leave. <laughs> what? I can't. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to cut Miles off before he says anything. I don't think we should comment on this until next week, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, let me. Will let, you will you trust me that <laughs> you will get mad at me if I try to talk about this? Uh, I, I I'll trust you. I'll trust you. But I I will say from my perspective, it yes. seems pretty dumb at this point. Um, what but, I will say is this: um, <laughs> I would argue. Um, I'm sort of with Joanna that again, this is. Yeah, uh, and yeah. I think the reason she says that is true is that it's very much yeah, set up. Yeah. Okay. Like, okay. All right. Don't, don't say like, anymore. Don't say anymore. Don't say anymore. You've already said too much. The okay. things that need to happen happened. Okay. 
All right. All right. Well, then. What, they- well, what did you think? That aside, that that perceived stupidity aside, what did you think of the Egret character and Dave? I'm asking you, like, did you like her? So she what, is a wildling, right? Yes. And uh, Osha is also a wildling. Brand's like lady servant is also a wildling, yes. right? Okay. I will say this: wildlings they clean up real nice. Um, Don't they <laughs> under those furs? Yeah, I know, right? Uh, but. Uh, yeah, I thought, you know, like, strong character, obviously, um, and th- there is this, uh, I really like the performance, you know, all, all the casting on the show is always so great, and the way she kind of defiantly was like, you know, Mayor, it was funny, because she she's about to get her head cut off, and then she's like, Mayor, aim be, like, straight and true, and we're like, well, we've already seen what happens when that doesn't <laughs> happen, when the aim isn't straight and true, um, so... Uh, so I really liked her a lot. Now, can, can you guys, can you, Joanna in particular, can you explain to me what she was doing at the end there? Oh, because I'm a lady? Yes, exactly. I'm actually, I know that maneuver quite well, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, I recognize that maneuver. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. I mean, I mean, I recognize You know what she was doing. Come, Come on, on. Dave, you know. <laughs> but, but, but to what end is my okay. question? To, like, seduce, so, to seduce and destroy. That was her mission, I believe. I see. Also, Dave, I'm kind of offended you asked Joanna, not me. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Sorry, Miles. I just, under, it, under all those furs, as we saw with the Osha character, there's something going on. Yeah. So she was using her feminine wiles to try to get out of a situation. All right. All right. Yeah. So I, I thought it was pretty... pretty cool sequence. But l- let me just say this also. I think Jon Snow is becoming very clear... Is it, would make it for a pretty crappy ranger. I mean, is it just me? Like he's like he he doesn't obey orders, and then the orders that he tries to obey, he just does a really crappy job of it. And it's not because he's a bad person. It's, it's the opposite. It's because he is a good person. Doesn't want to execute this guy. Doesn't want to leave babies out in the middle of the woods, and it gets him in trouble. And that's not that doesn't make for a good ranger. You know? I mean, what do you guys think? Well, I think one of the challenges here is that on the one hand, yes, I mean, Jon Snow does stupid things. It's a thing he'll do. Don't don't, don't feel as though that's going to stop. It's going to happen. A lot of characters do stupid things. Now, to be fair, you know, and, you know, he is Ned Stark's son. So, I mean, Ned also did stupid things in this circumstance. But what I will say is this, and I think it is an important sort of point to, I guess, no, in the books, the character is basically a teenager. Uh-huh. So a lot of the stupid things he did in the books, we could kind of like basically just say, okay, he's a kid, right? What's right. he going to do with that? When the show aged him up, they made some of these behaviors somewhat more stupid. And so he's perceived as naive, perhaps beyond his years or beyond how naive he should be at that age, compared to how I think the books played it out. And to a certain degree, I mean, we could say the same thing about Rob, who was equally aged up in the context of the show. But I do think it changes the perception of some of these actions. I think they've done some things to sort of make that a bit more sensical with Rob in particular. Um, They've been doing some things there. But I do think we're starting to see then with John, some of these things that he does are... Yeah, you start to wonder what he's thinking. Just a little bit. Joanna, any thoughts on Jon Snow's behavior? Um. <laughs> do you, do you, do, do you agree, do you well, agree with you, Miles? Oh, you're yeah, thinking. I do. And, it, and then I was just thinking about Rob and that battlefield scene and this character who's not in the book, but you know, that he's flirting with is Talisa and how like if he were a teenager, that sequence would have made so much more sense to me. Right. But right. it's you know, as it was, they were like two grown adults being like flirty. dumb teenagers. Yeah, yeah. And then Catelyn's like, 
what the shit you know <laughs> so uh yeah i agree with miles that there's there is something lost there when you know because what if they were i mean even joffrey you know what if rob were joffrey's age you know seeming or whatever you know wouldn't it be so much more impressive this boy king who has led these battles and that sort of stuff or or uh, although it would also be like insane that these grown men are taking orders from this like 16 year old you know what i mean yeah well, I think he was even fourteen in the books. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. Like, oh yeah, no, like, like, and like, certainly every everyone, all the kids were younger. Um, but I think just that the dissonance that created certainly the idea now is that he was still green. I mean, he still didn't know what he was doing. But I mean, these children are still all you know kids. We are we met them as children. We met them in positions where they weren't expecting to do any of this. And I still think the show has sold the transformation. Of a character like Rob or a character like John from one mode to the other. I just think that they're also acknowledging, and I think logically, that that transformation is ongoing. Um, it's just sort of like with John, like, there he is. He's, he's a ranger now. He's been put in this position. Part of us expects, based on what we know about the character, oh, he'll succeed. And then he makes some really dumb decisions. And I think that's something that we almost have to get used to in that characters will not always follow the most logical path. And that it would, and this isn't spoiling anything, we sort of say, it would probably make John's life easier if he had just chopped off her head. Uh, yes, I, I, I think right? uh, I, I can agree with that already. So exactly. <laughs> without any real- so, as long as we reach those conclusions, I feel. Well, and it's, it's impressive. I mean, like what what we're imp- we're impressed by Bran taking over Winterfell at his age, and we're impressed by Arya and everything she's done at her age. And so you lose that a little bit with the with the ones that they've aged up even more so. Don't you forget, know? don't forget Rickon. Oh, smashing! He's yeah, he's doing a lot, man. He's. I I forgot to address that. I'm pretty sure they did that just so you didn't forget that there was a Rickon. They're like, (laughs) let's have him sit. No, he's not just going to sit there. He's going to smash some nuts so that you really remember that there's another Stark kid. Don't forget. All right. And to be fair, I also think that Rickon serves a good function in terms of making Bran seem that much mature by comparison. Fair enough. And that Rickon is the total kid. He is completely unhinged. He's out of control. And in the context, I mean, of the books, you get that even more so because Rickon is seriously two. If it may be three. Like this is not this is a character who's basically a toddler. And at least in this instance, they've aged him up enough so he can like completely walk on his own and function. Um, but I think there's something to be said for the way in which that character serves as Bran's opposite, as this alternate version of Bran, of what Bran could have been. Bran could have just decided to be the child and he chose not to, which I do think reflects well in the character. Very cool. Uh, so let's move on to the next bit of plot that occurs in this episode. Um uh, and which is the Arya storyline and Arya continuing to be the cupbearer for Tywin. And this is the most tense scene I've ever watched in my entire life that features setting a table or clearing a table. <laughs> uh, and it, it really well executed, I thought, uh, with her trying to avoid Littlefinger's sight. And, and you feel like the horror that she must feel like if she's recognized it's game over for her, right? Uh, cause, or, or maybe not. Maybe Littlefinger would be like, hmm, interesting that she's here. I'm going to use this for my own purposes. Uh, so, yeah. What did you guys think of, uh, of this sequence here? Joanna? Uh, well, we're off the map of the books um, entirely. Littlefinger is just traipsing all around, which is not in the books. It's <laughs> sort of fun. He's just like, I'm going to visit this scene now. <laughs> uh, I expect him like be on the wall next. But... Um, <laughs> 
I thought it was well acted. Um, obviously, I think Aiden Gillen is doing a really good job with Littlefinger personally. And I think, I think they actually left it, like I said, it's off the map of the book. So I don't know whether or not he recognized her. I would totally not put it past this TV version of Littlefinger to just store that information away. That's a chip that he has in his, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's very, um, it's quite ambiguous whether yeah, it's or not ambiguous. he saw her. You don't know whether or yeah. not he recognized her. I thought he played that perfectly with his little side eye gestures and that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. And I love, like I said, it's not in the books that Arya is Tywin's cupbearer, but I think it's been some of the best television to have those scenes between the two of them. So I really liked it. Where is your father? Is he alive? Who was he? A stonemason. Stonemason who could read? Hmm. He taught himself. Quite a man. What killed him? Loyalty. No, and I think one of the things I like about that you've kind of sort of hit on is the tension around it and just this idea of Tywin and Arya's relationship. But I also, what I like about these Hall scenes is that they're one of the most purest representations of the point of view perspective of the books. So in these circumstances, we are in Arya's head. Our kind of tension is Arya's tension. Her anxiety is our anxiety. This relationship with that one character in that we don't really re- relate to Tywin. We can't really. The whole point is his position as a villain. We don't really relate to Littlefinger. It's Arya whose perspective we see. It's Arya whose tension we feel. And I think that's giving a really kind of visceral sense to the Hall sequences that there's this urgency and this danger that's pervasive in this environment based on the ruse that she's playing, based on the role that she's playing. Um, in these circumstances. And so I, I really have valued that. And certainly, basically, they're just letting Maisie Williams and um, Charles Dance just kind of play around with it. But I think that there's value just to letting these characters work in an environment where even small sequences that, like Dave said, seem mundane are given this incredible value based on the work that they've done to sketch out the circumstance. And you also have what you have with her. I completely agree with you, Miles. And what you have with her in this relationship with Tywin, which you don't see in the book, obviously, is Tywin, you know, we all know Tywin's not a great father from the way that he raised his own kids. But the way that he talks to her and values what she knows, you know, calls her a smart girl and all this sort of stuff like that is a way in which she was, you know, that Ned tried to value, but she was never valued in her own family. So it's one of these, you know, I mean, I'm not saying it's a Stockholm Syndrome situation, but, you know, it's like one of these situations where he's her mortal enemy, obviously, and... and It's mutual Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like it, the way he's treating her, you know, he just really values, you know, he thinks she's so smart for disguising herself as a boy and stuff like that. And it's like, we all agree, we think Arya is the best, but in the context of her former life, she was not thought of that way. So I love, I just love their relationship so much. You know, it, it's, it's like a cool, uh, almost like a mentor mentee relationship, <laughs> which is like, uh, given all the more, uh, it made much more interesting and, and made much more tense given the, the true nature of their relationship, which only Arya knows at this point. So, well, and I think too, that sort of picks up on something that's been the case with Arya to begin with. And she was introduced really as John as that figure in her life. John giving her needle, kind of giving her this advice, kind of like sending her off before he went to the wall. And then we have Sirio in King's Landing. We King King's Landing, sorry. You have Yorin on uh, from um, 
who kind of shepherded her further up the King's Road. And now, oddly enough, you have Tywin, who enters into this role of mentors in her life, these male mentors, always in this figure of just guidance and knowledge. And I think in Tywin's case, obviously, there's this sense of, you know, danger and concern. And I saw some people uh, criticizing the fact that when uh, Jockin gave her these wishes to kill whoever she wants, that she didn't immediately pick Tywin. And, but from everything that she's seen of Tywin, he is rational. He's kind of logical. He's knowledgeable. He's not cruel in the way one might normally expect. He's simply playing out this role, protecting his own family. I think that she relates to Tywin on a very strange, but a very sort of visceral level, where I don't think that her first instinct would be, I'm going to kill this man. I think that's true. I think uh, she does have this relationship with him. But I also think she knows that, man, that is some assassination stuff. Do you know what I mean? That is not just a regular kill. Uh, and so that's why she kind of holds off. That's my interpretation anyway. Was um, Did Amory Lorch die? Was that like a dart behind the ear? Is that how he was It looked like it was in the neck, actually, but I, I, don't, I couldn't <laughs> but like, tell. Yeah, the, the ear neck area with a feathered dart. Is that what we saw? Seems like it. I wish we had seen Jack and Hagar with the like the blow dart device. <laughs> that that quick shot, I wanted to see. That. I, I mean, actually, I actually wanted to run something by you guys on this because I've seen some criticism among uh, some book readers, particularly um, Elio at uh, Westeros, um, talking about this particular sequence and yeah. really kind of criticizing it based on what he felt was just kind of poor writing of being silly, kind of very almost sitcommy in its you know. Basically, Arya runs through the place, this kill comes out of nowhere, all very sort of frantic. And I was wondering how you guys responded to that sequence. I mean, I thought it was hilarious. You know, she like goes up to him. She's like, now, and you need to kill him now. And he's like, dude, you, you can't, you can't tell me when to do it. And she's like, no, you have to. And he get, he has this look on his face like, okay. And it's just, it's just hilarious because it's like juxtaposed with like this horrible act. Not to mention this guy who looks like a child molester. And it's just, I thought it was really funny. Um, <laughs> I and, think Chicken Hagar is supposed to be handsome. I don't know why you're getting child. Well, I mean, yeah. he speaks in a creepy third person way, but. He, he, you know. screeps, he speaks in a creepy third person way. And need I remind you of their first reaction while he's behind the cage? It's just like the scariest thing ever. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I, maybe I just have. Maybe I'm just more sensitive to this than you guys are. Okay. But, yes. we, we are totally comfortable with child molesters. Speaking it's true. Speak, that and a, a you know, peck on the cheek of rape. Speaking it's just of, like speaking a peck of, on the cheek of child molesters, really. Speaking of sensitivity, uh, I wanted to bring this up earlier. Um, but the reason why I didn't really know what the point of that move that Egret was doing was like, dude, it's so freaking cold there, man. Like, is there any, is there anything going on down there? You know what I mean? Like, it's so That's cold. That's what she's going for with the friction, Dave. I, gu- I guess, but man, like, you know, you're fighting against, you're fighting a losing battle against the environment is what I'm saying. And that's Don't great. underestimate a wildling. They've been doing that in the cold for a long, long time. <laughs> I, I guess, but maybe, I assume they have like some shelter or fire of some sort. Anyway, um, I will I will agree with Miles, and I I read that um that post on on Westeros as well that um it was a very slapstickish sitcommy vibe, which we don't often get in Game of Thrones, and maybe it was like a welcome bit of comic relief. But if you br- if you really break down that sequence of events, it doesn't really make sense. Like the whole her stealing the message, where was she going with that message? Why, you know, just 
it does if you really stop to think about it, it doesn't make sense but i enjoyed it so i'm choosing not to think about it I mean, that, that, that's, that's sort of where i landed on it too was that i mean to me it communicated two things number one i found it a little bit funny i'm not gonna lie um, and number two i do think it sort of got this sense of urgency that Arya experiences in this environment that one little thing like taking that sheet of paper running into the wrong person has the potential to completely unravel her position. And I think that I the scene was little fingered to, in a much more yeah. subtle and dramatic way. Joanna, and they ahead. also need to, sorry, they need to get through her kills. You know what I mean? It was another yeah. situation where like, this wasn't a well thought out kill. It was like, you know, you have three wishes from a genie in a bottle and you waste one, you know, accidentally offhand, you know, and oh. she's like, oh, it's an emergency kill, you know, and so now <laughs> yeah, she only has no. one left. So. It's yes. totally, it's totally a trope too, in the fact that they're rushing, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, like I know enough about where things are headed that like big things are on the horizon, as we should be when we're six episodes into the season. And it's like the wishes can't like play out you know, lackadaisically. Just you know, yeah, you know, things are sort of happening. Like <laughs> things are moving at a pace at this point that, in many ways, requires something of this nature to kind of draw things out. I agree, it's artificial. I agree, it doesn't entirely make that much sense, but ultimately. I found it very functional to get where we really needed to get in those circumstances. And I find that with this show, when some of the other moments are so good and so beautifully drawn and kind of gone through, I'm willing to accept certain functional moments to facilitate those other moments more effectively. So finally, we see a little bit more of Daenerys this week. And Daenerys not having a good time in Karth for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of them is that everyone seems to be turning her down uh, on her mission to take back the Iron Throne. Uh, and so there's this wonderful scene between her and the merchant. And I just love their interaction because it always feels like verbal chess, you know, and uh, love that stuff that's going on uh, when they when they kind of interact in that way. And usually the merchant gets the upper hand unless Zaro interferes. Um but uh, also, all of uh, all of her people were killed, and her dragons were taken. So that that kind of sucked a little bit more than. Well, uh, well I, I wouldn't say all of her people were killed. Okay, a, a, a lot of people. Uh, well, but yeah, because she she clearly yeah. had people to like with her when she went into her quarters and uh, yeah, and found everyone dead. So, and I think most prominently it was Eerie, who I do think serves as a symbol in this case of she being the Dothraki handmaid. Right. Yep, that right. she was the one who was meant to bring her into the Dothraki culture, who represented her connection to that heritage. She was the one who really kind of held on to this sense. And I noticed, I mean, I watched the last two episodes back to back, five and six, and you could see in episode five them starting to lay the groundwork of these two handmaidens, one of whom came from Westeros, who knew of these kind of cultures, could kind of move through, and the other who came from the Dothraki and who was meant to kind of bring into that culture and that was really like a little beat it's like remember these two characters that we met earlier who were distinct well which one is going to die in this circumstance and I think the fact that it was eerie is meaningful for where Danny's journey is going and her struggles to balance her different heritages now at this point we are not supposed to know where uh, those dragons are headed, right? I like, think Miles I, and I know, but I don't think you know. Right. I, I, I don't think, like, I actually re rewound the episode um, and tried to see if there was an establishing shot with that tower earlier on, and I did not find one. So I don't think we're supposed to know. Yeah. Um, sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I think the idea is that, they, that for, for Danny, she doesn't know. Right. This uncertainty, the idea of Karth as this place where, you know, she has so many... Think of all the enemies she's created. 
when you start running down the people she's gone to, the people who've turned her down, these different structures, there's multiple people who could have been responsible for that. And so following that through, I think, is sort of like, where next? Because then, to me, the whole point of Danny's entire storyline is the idea that she's always looking for the next direction of where is she headed? Is she, it's like, she started the season in the middle of a desert with no idea where to go, sending people in different directions. And in many ways, this is another example of that where she finds herself on an island with no idea where these things have gone, with no idea which direction to travel. So what do you guys make of the, uh, well, first of all, I, I have two reactions to this scene. One of them is that I think, um, is it Amelia Clark that plays Daenerys? Yes. Yep. Uh, I think she does a great job. You know, I think she, she has to, uh, she started the series as kind of this like blushing flower and then blossomed into a Khaleesi. And now she has to be like, give me what I want or else I'm going to be super pissed. And I think she does a great job. Um, so well done to her on that. But, uh, I also wonder like, you know, uh, whether, uh, whether she really is fit for this task that she so seems to want um because she doesn't seem to have that much knowledge of the way the world works and, and it's demonstrated in this uh dialogue with the merchant i'm no ordinary woman my dreams come true i admire your passion but in business i trust in logic not passion I'm sorry, little princess. I am not your little princess. I am Daenerys Stormborn of the blood of old Valyria, and I will take what is mine. With fire and blood, I will take it. Yes, my lady, but not with my ships. Well, I mean, I have to say, this is this is what one of the things that I was alluding to at the beginning of the episode. I did not like the Carthian sequence at all. And... I've been, I think I've been accused by some people who listen to the podcast as holding, I think someone said I hold the books as like a sacred text that should not be, you know, changed in any way. And I, and I don't feel that way. Like, like I said before, the Tywin and Arya stuff, I really love. It's not in the book. It's done really well. The Danny stuff, I'm not loving as much. I will admit that her plot line in A Clash of Kings, the book, is pretty boring. And we saw that in the first couple episodes when she was just like sitting in the desert for a while. And so they're trying to spice it up uh, in various ways by like stealing her dragons, which is not in the book. And, you know, these various confrontations, which are not in the book. She's I think she be behaves in a much more mature way in the books. She is much more diplomatic and fluid in the way that she integrates into the Carthian society and well, to a point. And so I just, I, I think they're just trying to spice up her storyline and it's, uh, causing damage to her character, I think. Yeah, so. but I, that doesn't, I don't think that makes it a bad move from a storytelling standpoint. I think if it, it, if it damages her character, I think it does. No, but what I'm saying, it, it's making her a worse character. It's making her a dumber character, maybe, but I don't think it's it's uh it's making the show less interesting. And go ahead, Mouse. Well, no, I think what's what's challenging. I think you're speaking something, David. I would tend to agree with, and I actually disagree with Joan in this. And the fact that for me, at least, Danny as a character 
she's been aged up slightly from the books. I mean, she was 13 in the books, which makes the whole peck on the cheek rape conversation somewhat different as well. But one of the difficulties, I think, in the case of Danny is that by making her somewhat older, you risk making her too mature. You, you risk making her too perfect a choice. And I think part of what the challenge is that if you put her across there being this perfect diplomat, kind of just waking down, on the one hand, it is boring. And her chapters of the Clash of Kings are categorically boring. But it, yep. And on top of that, I think it's important to note, too, that by making her somewhat more impetuous, she's more like a teenager, which she is. She's not this kind of queen. She's not this figure. And the idea that she can make mistakes, that she can be kind of trapped in these environments. And I think the show has done a good job of making her be a little bit fiery. She's unpredictable. She's not... a to me, if you place her in this circumstance and ask Amelia Clark just to stand there diplomatically and just sort of waste around, she's going to seem weak. And I think the whole point that if you go back to the, the end of the first season, that image of her walking into the fire is power. Right. It's, it's, it's kind of moving through. And if you then spend the next couple of sequences with her kind of being like, oh, you know, I'm just going to kind of, you know, not, not really unearth the fire very much, just kind of going to stand back. I think you need to see that bubbling to the surface. And I think that makes far more sense for the character from a televisual perspective. And for that reason, and I also, I guess, my other point of this is that I'm not convinced that these changes categorically change or damage the character when we don't know how they get out of them. I think until we see how they plan on putting the button in this storyline and resolving it, of moving her out beyond it, I think the transformative experience that it represents can be that maturing moment, can get her to a point where she makes those realizations that you're identifying she has already realized in the context of the books. I think this show can get to a similar point through a more divisive and, to my mind, interesting structure. And I I agree with you in terms of and, – and both of you guys – that really you couldn't have her just sitting and waving in the city of Karth for an entire season. And there is something I think interesting that will happen possibly if they, if they decide to use it. But, um, and I agree with you too, Miles, that it's probably too early for me to have such disdain for it and I need to see how they get her out of it. But for right now, I'm not enjoying it and I, I will reserve judgment until we see the button on the whole situation. There was this uh, image that flew around the internet comparing Game of Thrones characters to U.S. political figures, right. and uh, I thought some of them were pretty awesome. But I just cannot get Danny's out of my mind, which is that it compared her to Sarah Palin, and the comparison was comes from a faraway land, wants to rule despite lack of qualifications, <laughs> and uh, I just for some reason whenever she's like making her demands, I just cannot. <laughs> disassociate that that description of her with that though uh anyway a lot of interesting stuff going on in this week's game of thrones and uh i i thought it was it was a, a pretty awesome episode I, I know we're running long but i just have one more thing that i want to say okay which is and i and i'm really glad that miles is here for this particular episode <laughs> um which is that um the whole osha seduction oh yeah Theon we forgot to mention that sorry and that whole thing um, that was the other change from the book that I didn't like personally, because in the book she she achieves something similar, but she does it by showing herself to be a fierce, awesome warrior, and she never takes off her clothes, and she never has sex with him. And it doesn't make any sense in the show why she would have sex in him with him and have him naked and not kill him right then and there. You know, it, all it did was to provide some nudity, which I swear I'm not a prude. I don't mind nudity. In the show, but, you know, once again, they're using it in a way that seems unnecessary to the plot line for me, so. 
Miles McNutt, any any thoughts on this? Well, I mean, since I was not called on as an expert in the earlier sequence with the grit <laughs> and that circumstance, I suppose I can chime in here. Um, for me, for me, at the very least, in this sequence, I would agree that it's sort of unclear why she's using this. But I would argue that in many ways, she's appealing to the boyishness of Theon of appealing to his kind of cavalier attitude in these structures and of needing a circumstance in which he's willing to let down his guard. And I think the show's also dealing with the fact that compared to, and this is again where we go say, like, Osha in the books is like 45, 50. Right. She's not in a circumstance where she could play this role, and in many ways she's forced to prove herself in different ways. Here, obviously, being younger, being more conventionally attractive. Um, and in these circumstances, I think she's playing on what is Theon's weakness. And if any, if the season is showing us anything, and if the show is showing us anything, Theon's weakness is women. And he's got the idea that that is where he lets down his guard. I mean, so when we first really got a real scene with Theon explaining himself, it was with Roz in a case of sex position. And the first kind of scene we really saw with Theon after he left Rob was again the sex position sequence of him in the, with the captain's wife, uh, with the captain's daughter in the ship. And so we're seeing this kind of role playing out. And he also kind of picks up on that, uses it. And to me, it's like, well, obviously, it's a more extreme example. And yes, it involves nudity, which plays more into the kind of premium cable logic of needing to show it. When you actually get down to it, it's the same kind of thing that Agrit was using with John of trying to use this to her advantage. It's just a much Osha just kind of commits to it a little bit more, and I would agree that it's not entirely clear why she needs to do, go that far and why she doesn't just kill him there. Um, but I do think, too, there's something about maybe they're trying to be stealthy. Maybe they're trying to save the rest of the people of Winterfell. I could, I could by not killing Theon and thus creating further unrest, like, I could justify it in multiple ways. The show doesn't, so that's not really, it's really beside the point. But I would argue the sequence gets the point across in that sense, and I think I can connect it back logically, but I would agree I also raised an eyebrow. I'm just amazed, yeah, you raised an eyebrow in more ways than one. <laughs> Boom! Um, <laughs> but, uh, I, I'm just amazed that, um, the, uh, uh, oh, wildlings have uh, like th- that. Th- like their bodies are so well groomed. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like the first time we saw Osha, let's be honest, uh, she did not seem like a very sexual creature. But now, like she takes her clothes off, and it's like everything is just totally, you know, you know. Boom! <laughs> yeah. Boom! Awesome. I guess. I guess what it comes down to is. I object to a woman having to use her sexuality as a weapon, which it can be used. Um, I object to that when in the book, sh- you know, as you say, she's older in the book or whatever, but like when she could have done it just by proving her prowess as, as a fighter, which is what she does in the book, which is kind of a more empowering way for a woman to, you know, show her strength rather than taking her clothes off. So I don't know. I, I, that upset me a little bit. So. Well, I, I already I feel the uh, the collective clatter of tons of male Game of Thrones fans firing up their angry emails to us, uh, Joanna. <laughs> uh, but, but yes, <laughs> and insisting that that nudity was absolutely necessary, and how dare how dare you suggest otherwise? People people who are listening might think I'm joking, but I, I guarantee we will receive emails to this effect. Yeah, um, we've, we've had them before. Yeah. Absolutely. So anyway, all right. Well, let's uh, speaking of emails, you can always reach us at acastofkings at gmail dot com, and got a couple more emails here. 
that we want to discuss. So here we go. Uh, this email comes from Wade. And guys, please let us know where you're from when you're emailing us. Um, and this is for people that have read the books. Now that we are f- uh, however many episodes into this uh, season, do you think 10 episodes is really enough to do the second book justice? Uh, and Wade wrote this email in during episode four. Now we're at episode six. Uh, at this point, I'm not so sure, Wade says. I'm afraid they're going to have to cram way too much into the second half of the season. I love the show. I just hope they're able to split the book three into two different seasons. That is, unless they can get more episodes in the next run. Uh, what do you guys think, Joanna and Miles? Do you think they're doing a good job of uh, condensing this and without making it seem too too condensed? I think they're doing a great job. I think it, book three would be better split over two seasons but the problem they're facing obviously is those kids are growing up so that's I think their biggest challenge um, is the race against that's what the Harry Potter franchise is the biggest challenge is a race against the kids growing up you know so what I mean what what I would also say in that respect too is that personally I feel the second season has been adapted fine I mean personally I'm willing to accept the limitation that's been placed on them it's not going to change i mean season three is also going to be 10 episodes they're not getting extra the money isn't there as it is the economics of this it's hugely expensive while it is also hugely successful it's tough i think for hbo to justify if they start allowing that budget to balloon out of control i think they're being very careful to avoid a situation like rome or deadwood where budgets got out of control and they kind of had to end things early but i would also say that in the context of the third and fourth season, and even the second season to a certain extent, there are parts of the second book that drag a bit. It's not as kind of jam-packed as the third. The third is by far the biggest challenge, but the fourth is a little bit easier. So like, I think you're right. going to start to see this idea of seasons will no longer completely match up with books. You'll start to see things shift around, things sort of start moving. And I think as you do that, you might be able to see a more fluid structure to the point where I don't, I mean, right now it's impossible not to because we see the books in our head and know what's going to happen and know the chapter structures, but there might be a point where we just have to sort of say things are going to be out of order, things are going to be out of whack, things are moving in these different directions, and just to then cut off the book side of our minds for a second and say, how does this work as a 10 episode season of a television show? Which is more what Day's perspective would be in these instances. Yeah. And if it works yeah. on that level, I don't really care. The only reason I would say to split book three into two seasons is because book three was originally published as two different books in England. Like, that's how dense book three is. And that's the only reason. Otherwise, like, I agree with you. As as a televisual sort of experience, the way in which they've altered the the story is working very well. I can see where they're going. I can see the set pieces that are coming, what they have to make time for. And I'm excited. That's what I have to say. And I think I will say one thing, too. I've seen a lot of which is strange, but just think it's something they're preparing for. Um, they've been referring to episodes not as like ep- season two, episode six, but rather episode 16. So they're already starting to count this not as like 10, not as segments of a larger story in terms of like each season as a segment, but rather each episode is a part of this longer narrative. I think preparing us for the fact that this is not going to be like book season structures. I think they're already thinking forward to a slightly larger sort of scale and I think, you know, ultimately, yes, they will run as seasons. They'll have season premieres and finales. They still follow that structure. But you get a sense that narratively speaking, they're trying to avoid falling into that rigidity that we normally associate with TV in favor of something that might give them more freedom to work in the future. Shane from Southern California writes in, Dear David and Joanna, 
First things first, keep up the great work with Cast of Kings. It might be my favorite podcast right now. And let me pause here for a moment and say, if you've gotten to this far in this episode of the Cast of Kings, it probably means you're, you're, hopefully you're a fan and you're not just listening out of morbid curiosity. And if that's the case, please go right now and leave us a review on iTunes or give us a star rating. It just takes literally 15 seconds of your time and it really helps us out because i don't know if you know this but there are dozens dozens of game of thrones podcasts out there and uh if you like us and you want us to get more attention just head on over to itunes leave a review for us for us okay let's move on uh he uh shane continues to write i love game of thrones but would it kill the series to actually show a full-scale battle scene? We've seen the before and after two major battles between the Starks and the Lannisters and the aftermath of Theon Greyjoy taking Winterfell, but we've yet to see a major battle. It didn't matter to me as much this week because we got to show, uh, see jo- Joffrey hit with a cow pie, and really, what can top that? <laughs> I suppose the problem with being able to show a battle sequence would be the budget, and it would take too much time out of an hour-long show since there's so much going week to week. Still, I'd love to see a full-scale battle. P.S. Do you think Littlefinger actually realized that the cupbearer was Arya Stark? I keep going back and forth. On that last point, I would venture no, just because I think the shock of seeing Arya in Tywin's chamber would be even too much for a skilled liar like Littlefinger to handle. Um, but that's just where I'm leading right now. In terms of the uh, battle sequences, yeah, it is purely uh, a budgetary thing. I mean, even the season... Like, I, I am shocked that they were able to bring this season in at the budget that they did, which I believe, and Miles, correct me if I'm wrong, is around somewhere between 60 and $70 million. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they, like, no show on television, I would argue, is as visually ambitious as this show. Um, because, Iceland. Yeah, we got, <laughs> we got Iceland. I mean, dude, just go back, think back to the first episode where uh, you have freaking idols burning on a beach. Do you know what I mean? And like, someone had to like create those things and transport them to the beach. Do you know what I mean? And then set them on fire and then gather tons of extras there and dress them in like the correct attire. And then it's just like mind boggling how much work goes into the show. So the fact that they don't have battle sequences is something I can easily forgive. Well, I guess I will answer Shane's question directly. Would it kill the show to do this? Yes. <laughs> if, the show, if the show committed to doing these battle sequences, it would become a budgetary mess for HBO and be canceled. So it would quite literally kill the show. Yeah. So we don't, we don't, you know, keep keep doing what you're doing, Game of Thrones. Keep on and keeping on. I think uh, there was a Wall Street Journal piece about this uh, that I thought was pretty fascinating. And uh, minor spoilers ahead. Like, I don't even know what this is talking about but that there was some debate about like they wanted to originally wanted to build 11 ships um but that they ended up only building one <laughs> and so they're really trying to, really? to stretch what they have yeah well um, what i'll say what i'll say is this um that if shane wants to wait it out a little bit all indications suggest that uh there is an upcoming battle that will be more more depicted than there has been to this point. Yes, I didn't that, want to say that in case Dave yelled at me, but I did know what Miles said. And to be fair, if Dave has read that Wall Street Journal piece, that is the battle that's being referred. To. Yes, that's true. I did read. I, I I I glanced over it. I mean, I don't I don't know. I actually didn't read which battle it was. Like, I don't know who it's between. Which but, I did not say that. Did yeah, I? And we won't. Yeah. And we won't tell you, Dave. Oh, but good. I will say this: I was rereading, uh, possibly maybe that part recently, and I got really excited yes. for the show. So I'm serious. It's gonna uh, be 
potentially if they do it awesome all right let's see what else here okay uh patrick from london writes in quick word on dave's comments about how he's not really enjoying the show uh we're just supposed to automatically be in touch with some of the relationships being developed in this episode uh and the series in general with five books already published and the intention of seven completing the series, if we stick to the formula that HBO has been using, that's over 70 hours of television, uh, to get involved with these relationships. In Chen's defense, every time I watch the show with people who haven't read the books, they end up saying something like, ugh, I can't wait till next week. Or I get barraged with a series of questions about what's going to happen next, a position that Joanna can surely empathize with. The point I'm trying to make is that if you've chosen the television route for this story, you're going to have to be patient and put your trust in the story. It might dip here and there, but overall, Martin hasn't left too many smoke monsters lingering in lost territory. Cheers. Loving the podcast. Uh, let me just say right out uh in response to this email and many many comments and emails that we've gotten of a similar nature i i think that's like a largely a bullcrap argument in the sense that i think you should be able to evaluate shows uh to some extent on an individual basis like episodes i should say and yes, we're going to look back at the end and evaluate the whole, and that ultimately will be more important, but people are experiencing the show on a week-to-week basis, and to and, and there is some responsibility, I think, to crafting episodes that are in and of themselves satisfying. And Miles, you know, we've had this argument before. We have. Um, and I don't want to, re- I don't want to recredit it, except for, pe- except for just to say that, like, people are complaining that me, Dave Chen, that I am doing too much complaining, and it's just like, dude, you know, that's that's just how I do, man. I, I, I was going to say, you that's should just be used to that. Yeah. At point. Um, but I think one of the challenges is that here is like, my argument to you is never, how dare you criticize this episode, right? But ultimately, my mind is sort of like, let's wait and see how this plays out. And that's right. just, I, mean, I think I just might be an inherently patient person. But I think this comment and this email gets to the challenge with this show in particular, in that some of us don't need to be patient because we know what happens. Right. And we can't get over that. And this podcast is built around that binary for obvious reasons. And I think we're always dealing with that within conversation conversation about the show of some of us fill in the gaps without knowing we're filling them in so we don't have these questions because we don't have the capacity in our minds to forget this information as fans of the books we have this effective relationship with them our minds are like yeah we know these things we take them for granted and as that plays out in the show, it's very tough to get in the head of someone who's never seen it before. And so, I mean, like, I've on occasion used my parents for this and that they're watching the show and they don't have these knowledges. So what confuses them starts to get me thinking about, okay, what might they not be doing quite as good a job with? And I think, if you, I mean, I don't know if any of you listened to the DVD commentaries in the first season, but when they're talking about the original pilot, which has technically exists in the wild somewhere, but has never really been screened or seen in any capacity, they said that then they didn't do a good enough job of explaining character relationships. They left things for granted. They didn't adapt certain things. They didn't make these sorts of changes. And that problem, while I would argue the pilot did a pretty decent job, is going to persist in sort of a smaller scale throughout the show and these different processes. And to me, at least personally, as someone who's read the books, my job is simply to say, I do not expect you, Dave, to have the same relationship to these characters as I do. Fair, fair enough. And I think so long as we go in with that mindset, I, I on occasion I think it's fine to say, Dave, you know, be patient, right? Because I <laughs> right. love I love doing that to you. It's one of my favorite things in the world. <laughs> but there's something to be said for at the same time acknowledging that while I, you know, I 
you know, implore you to stay kind of aware and thinking and see what the show does. Ultimately, if the show doesn't live up to that, that is a failing. And right. it's not something, and I think this comment, this email in particular sort of suggests that, you know, things will get better. Like, it's sort of like saying, you know, things will come together, things will move through, but we don't know that's the case. And I think going back to, Joanna, your concern regarding Danny, whatever happens with her, if it doesn't play out, I'm not going to go back and say, oh, no, well, it's still fine. Like, I'll be willing to say they made mistakes early on. But, like, what determines a mistake is so difficult when some of us are filling in gaps, others don't have the same information. It makes it really fascinating, if complicated and somewhat difficult, critical environment for the series. And I think, to be perfectly honest, it's the reason why this particular podcast and any any of the Game of Thrones podcasts that have have book readers on the show are popular is because people are watching and loving the show, but left often confused as to what just happened to a certain extent. And so I know several people who listen to this podcast because they haven't read the books and they need our discussion, the, the questions that Dave asks and, you know, the information that I have in my head to help you know, parse the show. Yeah, so although, I, you, although you'd never guess that from some of the emails. Uh, basically, many emails and commenters uh, uh, strongly imply that I am stupid. I mean, that's just, uh, <laughs> let's, just let's just get that out there. That, uh, that, that is a fact, that, that they are strongly, they're saying, I can't believe how, here, here's an email, Nathan from Northumberland, UK, continually amused by how little Dave actually knows. I know you haven't read the books, but I wonder sometimes if you actually watch the show or just the best bits. He means the naked bits. <laughs> exactly. The nudie bits. The nudie bits. Um, um, but yeah, no, I think I think it's helpful to people who haven't, I mean, or you can rewatch the episode three times and finally get the nuance. You know what I mean? But I think they are, which I appreciate because they're not talking down. You know what I mean? You don't want to show that that is super obvious. But the same token, I think there's so much more you can get when you do know that rich backstory. So. Yeah, and and let me just also say there is an entire industry. There is an entire industry, millions of dollars built on people resummarizing television episodes. Yeah. Why do you think that exists? Okay, yeah. why do you think there's a need? For people to resummarize television episodes. It is because sometimes not all the plot details are clear to everyone. Now, obviously, Nathan from Northumberland, UK, might be able to grasp all the finer details. But he does not represent 100% of the audience. That's all I have to say about that. Not that I'm defensive or anything. No. Dave, I just think you need to pay attention when people have their clothes on. I know it might be hard. And you get bored and fidgety. Or oh, it might be, it, oh, it might be hard, Joanna. Oh, okay. <laughs> it might be hard. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note. On that note, exactly. <laughs> uh, again, find all of our episodes at GameOfThronesPodcast.com. Write in with your emails at acastofkings at gmail.com. Miles McNutt, where can we find more of your work on the internet this week? You can find me. Uh, I just wrote my final review of the second season of Scrubs at the AV Club. Um, I have my own blog. At timely. Timely. I know, Miles. right? Uh, at cultural-learnings.com. And you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash M-E-M-L-E-S. Joanna Robinson. You can find me every day on pajiba.com or you can follow me over on Twitter at quityourjrob. Find me at twitter.com slash davechensky. That's davechensky. Davechen.net. And you can check out the other two podcasts I do, the Slash Filmcast at SlashFilmcast.com 
and uh, the Tobolowski Files at TobolowskiFiles.com. Thank you guys for listening to A Cast of Kings. We'll see you guys next week.